All right, and we are rolling once again, Brother Kevin. It is so good to hear your voice once more. You just got done at the gym. What'd you work today? Oh, I'm pumping it up, baby. Uh, so I actually just worked out a little bit, did about seven miles, burned 900 calories, trying to trying to get all this fat off of me, man. It feels good. Man, you ran more than I did. And today we're going to be running headlong back into our Q&A. In our last episode, we did uh, we answered I li- several I li- questions. I like that. I like that segue. I see what you, you did like there. That? I like that? Hey. Hey, I'm teeing it up, baby. Hey. We're just we're just trying to drive it down the fairway, figuratively speaking. Bodily exercise profits little, so you got to do it a lot. <laughs> I like it. That needs to go on a t-shirt, man. man if only I knew someone that had a, a promotional huh. company. Yeah, put that on a shirt. Yeah, somebody who could make those for you. Yeah. Well, on our last episode, we discussed, um, we answered some of the questions that our audience has sent in to us, and we ended up running longer, imagine that, than what we had anticipated, and we didn't get to all the questions. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to go ahead and pick up where we left off. We're going to get back into some of those questions. One of the questions that was sent in to us, and I'm going to go ahead and just reference this question immediately is a question of what do we do with Adam in light of all of this craziness? What do we do with Adam if Genesis is not literal? Doesn't that undermine the entirety of the gospel? And that is a question that we had intended to answer on this podcast, but to all of our audience, you're going to have to wait a little longer because in the episodes to come, we are interviewing Dr. Dennis Lamaru. He is an, a wonderful human being. He is an extremely intelligent human being. He has a doctorate in dentistry. He has a doctorate in theology, and he has a doctorate in evolutionary biology. This is a man who believes that evolution is the means by which God brought everything into existence. And this is a man who loves God with all of his heart. So we're really looking forward to having him on here. And in a future episode, we're going to devote one entire episode to that concept in and of itself. Now, it'll be a little while before we get there, but we will answer that question. Just not tonight, unfortunately. All right, we're going to jump right into it with this question. And that is, is there any evidence historically, that Jews, any Jew for that matter, believe that Genesis 1 through 11, or any of Genesis, the first part, the creation account, should be understood as parabolical and myth storytelling, or is this a new concept? That is a really, really good question, and that's something that you had asked in one of the previous episodes, and I answered at that point, I don't know, I'm going to have to research this. And I actually have to give credit, it was actually my wife, Bethany, who wanted to know that. So I I acted smart by asking the question, but she was the one who asked me the question. Hey, behind every great man, there's a greater woman. Isn't that the truth? Oh, man, she's sharp, too. Yeah, she is. Your wife's a sharp cookie. But anyway, whenever you originally asked this question in the middle of that um, episode that we were doing on science and faith, where we were just kind of going through the the ideas, you had asked that question. I said, well, I don't really know. I, I honestly have no idea, but I'll need to look into that and I'll research it and we'll hit that in the Q&A. Well, we're here and I've looked into that. I've done some research on it and it was really, really interesting to see that there were Jews that actually looked at the scriptures in this way in ancient times. And whenever you look at the early church fathers, we're all, or a lot of people, I'm not going to say we all are, but we're a lot of people are familiar with their fourfold interpretive philosophy that they have that, you know, you can look at the scriptures literally, but you can also look at them allegorically and anagogically. And then there's one more that I can't remember, but that's how the early church fathers believed that you could look at the scriptures. Well, they lived a few hundred years after the close of the canon, after the completion of the, of the scriptures. And what's really interesting is that they borrowed that philosophy from some of their Jewish rabbi contemporaries, but that was also a viewpoint that existed within the Second Temple era as well. And according to one article that I had come across in a peer-reviewed journal that, that looks at a lot of this stuff, and we'll post the link to this article in our show notes, Philo, who was a, an eminent Jewish philosopher and he was a Jewish theologian, he believed in this idea of, of different interpretive strategies. He didn't believe that you should look at the entirety of Scripture as a literal work detailing literal history. Philo says that in six days the world was created, 
not that its maker required a length of time for his work, for we must think of God as doing all things simultaneously, remembering that all includes with the commandments which he issues the thought behind them. Six days are mentioned because for the things coming into existence there was a need of order. For it was requisite that the world, being most perfect of all things that have come into existence, should be constituted in accordance with a perfect number, namely six. Now Philo took a lot of interest, as did the rabbis of his day, in numerology. They looked for patterns in numbers. Numbers, specific numbers, had specific meanings for specific people and in specific uh, contexts. And this idea provides a good indication of what Philo's stance was as it related to scriptural interpretation. It, to him, the days are symbolic. They're not literal. They had a symbolic meaning. He may have thought that they were literal, but the greater sense to him was that they weren't literal. They were symbolic. And he doesn't even believe the passage was intended to give the order of, the event, of events as they took place, just that it was necessary to order them for the purpose of the reader. Um, that's interesting. So the answer to your, to the question is, is yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, pretty much. That, that yeah. there, that there was, that there was at least one individual who did not read Genesis literally, uh, as far as well, literal straightforward history that they understood Genesis to be more parabolical. And that, and that question, I love that question. And not only because my, my awesome, beautiful wife asked it to me, but also because I think that question is important when we're studying any topic, I don't believe that that question is the de facto question of any topic because ultimately we need to let the Bible be our guide. But I do look throughout not just early church history, but throughout history in general, and I, and especially as early as we possibly can to say were there any were there anybody was there anybody who believed X Y Z whatever topic that we're studying at the time or whatever position we're studying at the time. So I know that there have been people to reach out to me to say that what you're espousing is new that this nobody ever believed this uh, up until recently. This is nothing more than just uh, 19th century higher criticism. And the really response to that is no, that's not true. We can go all the way back to did you say the second century, right? Well, yeah, to the second century and even before that into the second temple period. I mean, I think Philo lived, what, a couple of hundred years before Christ. I know that he was influenced. He was Hellenist. He was influenced in part by Plato and what Plato said, but he was also widely regarded as an astute and respectable um, reader and interpreter of Jewish law. So you can't just disregard what Philo said. The early church fathers referenced him. He was widely regarded as a well-read Jewish scholar of his day, one of the preeminent ones. Yes, and, and you know, I was actually looking at my notes, and that's where I got second century. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so what you're talking about is 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 prior to that because you're dealing with the Jew, but also what I was reading in my notes here kind of got ahead of myself that I was going to bring up is that when you do look at it, not just the Jews, but also going forward with the Greeks and the Romans and the early church fathers, we see that they read the Bible in a lot of ways allegorically, where they didn't take these stories as literal straightforward history. And Origen is an example of that. Uh, Origen, he actually believed that we should read most of the Bible in an allegorical manner, he believed that it at least had an allegorical meaning that you couldn't just read the flat meaning of scripture and take it for what it was. You actually had to find the deeper hidden meaning that was more of a mystery. And you only could do that by understanding it in an allegorical sense. And so I do find that to be very interesting as well, that this just wasn't a, a Jewish thing. But going forward, we also see some of the early church fathers understanding scripture in this way. Well, and my understanding is, is that that second temple interpretive strategy or that interpretive strategy that Jews use in that second temple era is what influenced some of those early church fathers like Origen to look at things in a more allegorical way. And if you really think about it, if you take the scriptures, we all read the Bible that way, even subconsciously, because whenever we look at the scriptures, yeah, we see what it says. And this is a this is a term that I've liked to employ from time to time. The Bible says what it says, but it also means what it means. And there's a lot of times where we take a story that has nothing to do with our day and time, and we find an application for us. Like whenever we look at the story of David and Goliath in the scriptures, you see that story there in First Samuel describing how this little ruddy-looking shepherd boy from you know some backwater there in Judea, he ends up slaying what, who would arguably be, 
arguably be one of the greatest warriors of all time. What's the purpose of that story? You know, the purpose of that story is to tell the story of how David, who would become one of the greatest kings Israel ever had, killed a giant. He killed a giant of a man. He killed a giant warrior. That's the purpose. But how many times have we looked at that that story in an allegorical fashion? How many times have we looked at that story and we thought about the Goliaths that we face in our lives? You know, if we want to use that term, we do that to a point, and, and that's a part of a large interpretive tradition. And whenever we think about Genesis in particular, especially Philo, one of the things that he said about the trees in the Garden of Eden is that they should be intended to be looked at symbolically rather than literally. And he says, for never yet have trees of life or of understanding appeared on the earth, nor is it likely that they will appear hereafter. And that whole concept of the garden, that whole concept of the Adam story, he looked at that in a figurative way. He didn't see it as being mythical or denigrating the scriptures. He didn't see it as being an affront against the scriptures. He didn't view that in that way, in a in such a manner that the scriptures were no longer trustworthy as an arbiter of truth. They weren't mythical fictions, as he said. And he says, such as poets and sophists delight in, but modes of making ideas visible, bidding us to resort to allegorical interpretation guided in our renderings by what lies beneath the surface. Well, it's kind of funny because today I hear a lot of fundamentalists, which I definitely do not describe myself as a fundamentalist anymore. I try to get away from that term. And honestly, I'm trying to get further away from uh, evangelicalism because I, I'm starting to realize that I really don't fall into that camp anymore. But you'll you'll hear especially very strict literalist, biblicist, fundamentalist say that you should never take a story and make it your own. You should never look at a, a, a story in the Bible and make it your own. And I think it's ironic because that's not what the Jews did. The Jews did take these stories and they would make it their own because they would look for that meaning. They would look for that, what we call today, quote unquote, practical application. Now, certainly you can take it way too far. You know, I've, I've heard yeah, people yeah. talk about the story you just reference David and Goliath. And I've heard people talk about, you know, the five smooth stones that David had represented faith, trust, courage, obedience, and praise. And, and I've heard whole sermons preached on that. And, you know, as long as we understand that that's just us making the story something for ourselves, that's fine. But I think sometimes people can get a little confused because we end up really just making more law and more memory work where it doesn't exist. And so I, I think there is a balance there. But the point is, is that for those who are strict literalists or biblicists, they do have an issue with looking at anything in the Bible and taking it more than what you can read on the surface, because to them, you just, whatever it says, you do. And oftentimes that unfortunately means completely ignoring context. In fact, I was reading something the other day by a Christian who was mocking another Christian because of his study. And he said, you know, you you take this topic and instead of just letting people read it for themselves, you believe that you, they have to know all this other information for them to really understand this text. And the other guy was like, yeah, that's exactly what I believe, because otherwise you're going to take this verse or this passage out of context. And so the the bottom line that I just want to point out in everything you just said is that Taking the Bible at what we call today face value is more or less a post-Enlightenment concept, or at least yeah. during the Enlightenment period through through this period. I do believe it happened before, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that didn't happen at all until then, because you have people uh, like Anthony the Great, who heard Matthew 19, 21, where Jesus said, if you want to follow me to the rich young ruler, go and sell everything you have. And he literally went and sold everything he had. So there were people who were biblicists and, and, and literalists back then. But overall, uh, you really didn't start seeing that happen until the postmodern period, postmodern enlightenment period, because now it's just the idea that you just pick up the Bible and read it and just do what it says. And we see where that's led us. It's led us to over 30,000 denominations because everybody thinks their interpretation is the exclusive correct interpretation. <laughs> Well, and dude, that, and that's the tragedy of it is because everyone believes they have a lock on truth. 
It's like, we've got it figured out. We've got the lock on truth. We have the whole counsel of God right here. And we figured it out. We've cracked the code. And everybody else out there that thinks differently is just loud and wrong. And like you said about the context, brother, I mean, that's so important because I had someone come to me whenever we went through the, what, 15 some odd hours or 14 and a half hours on marriage, divorce and remarriage that we did in the early days of this podcast. I had someone come to me and say, so you mean to tell me that we can't take what Jesus said about marriage, divorce and remarriage and really understand it without all this other background information? And I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's important. It's contextually important. I mean, I think that was even a question we answered in the Q and a, yeah. but, but I think there's a lot of people whenever they hear this, especially this stuff, whenever it relates to Philo's, they'll say, Oh, well, big deal. Philo looked at it that way. Well, that doesn't really mean anything. Well, Philo wasn't alone. There were other people that shared his predilection and we see that in the Targums. Now there are a lot of people who may not know what a Targum is and what a Targum is, is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures as well as a commentary on that scripture. It's like a MacArthur study Bible or a Ryrie study Bible or something like that. It's analogous to that today. In the day that Jesus lived, um, a lot of the Hebrew scriptures had been translated into Aramaic. And even after that, a lot of them spoke in Aramaic and they would only speak in Hebrew in the temple and the scribes and the Pharisees and the people of the law would know Hebrew to be able to write it. But the, the language of the day in a lot of those regions in Capernaum and Judea, it was Aramaic. Well, there are, oh, excuse me, there are three Targums that have been found. One of them is called the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan. And in this, you see reflected in the commentary, the interpretive thought and the interpretive tradition of the Hebrews that read it. And in Pseudo-Jonathan, there's a whole lot of commentary in Genesis 1 on the sun and the moon. And it, and it reads like this, God made the two great lights and they were equal in glory for 21 hours less, 672 parts of an hour. After the moon spoke with a slanderous tongue against the sun, and it was made smaller. And he appointed the sun, which was the greater light, to rule over the day, and the moon, which was the lesser night, lesser light rather, to rule over the night. Now you don't read any of that craziness. You don't read any of that stuff in Genesis itself. This is an interpretive strategy that was used. This is something that they had read into the text based on maybe some oral traditions or or whatever else. But in any sense, you see a case being made for a non-literal reading. So we see other Jews taking this position of a non-literal reading of the creation account there in Genesis 1. And in the same way, the creation of man is embellished. Um, it also reads like this, And God created Adam in his own likeness. In the image of God, he created him with 248 members, with 665 nerves. And he formed a skin over him and filled it with flesh and blood, male and female. In their appearance, he created them. Now, there's a whole lot more nerves than 665. So it's been suggested by some scholars that these numbers are to draw parallels to the Torah, which contains 248 commands and 665 prohibitions. This is a non-literal, metaphorical, allegorical reading. And anyway, whenever you look at the Garden well, of Eden, I mean, they even go into that as well. Anyway, go ahead. What you got? Well, I was just going to say, if, if people are listening to this and they're thinking this seems a little far-fetched, because when, when we hear of people start talking about numbers and trying to attach numbers to meanings and all those types of things. You think of crazy backwoods conspiracy theorists out there, right? Who are like, okay, well, if you take this number and you divide it by this and then you add this and then you- Yeah, no you, Wi-Fi. You got to wear your tinfoil hat. Get your tinfoil <laughs> yeah. hat on. And so uh, to, to defend what Lee is saying here, what, what we have to do is not ask what we would do today, but what did they do back then? And why did they do it that way? And so that's why it's important not to interject what we think they should do and to project our own understandings, but to say, okay, well, that may be crazy today, but back then, that is how they did things. Whether it was right, whether it was wrong, whether it was the way God wanted them to do it, whether it's the way they should have done it, in large part, this is the way that many, not just Jews, but also Gentiles and Romans would end up reading the Bible for, for many years to come. And so it's important to point that out, that this is not just pie in the sky, let's just pull this from thin air, and Lee's just trying to connect things that don't exist. This He is explaining this is how they would have understood it. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that and that's that's right on the mark, brother, because this isn't like you said, this isn't a new product of the post enlightenment age. This isn't a new way of thinking that's rooted in 19th century higher criticism. This isn't the, some new heresy that I've been swept away in. This is a mode of thinking and a mode of interpretation that has been utilized throughout time. I mean, from from even before the time that Christ himself was born and lived and died on this world, this is this isn't anything new. So to answer the question in a very brief way, did any Jews look at Genesis in this way? Yeah, they did. And they went even crazier, if you want to call it that, than uh, than I have gone, at least in my opinion on this. All right. Well, that's that answers that. So let's let's get on to the next question. Do you have anything else to say about that? No, I think that covers it. I have more in the notes, but I think it just bore everybody just talking okay. about Targums and all this other stuff. So we'll just go ahead and move well, on. It, it lets people know that, yes, this 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 was at least an option, whether that doesn't make Lee correct. That doesn't that doesn't in and of itself really mean much of anything other than the fact that there were people who at least did understand Genesis in a parabolical myth storytelling type of way. Correct. Yeah, I'm not out on a limb out here all by myself. I'm in good company. So yeah, and that and that's something that which this kind of gets off a subject a little bit, but that's something that I'm very cautious now is when I hold a position. If I look back and realize that nobody ever held that position, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm wrong, but it does cause me to question the validity of that conclusion if throughout history no one has ever come to the same conclusion that I've come to. And yeah. especially when I look into early church, and not just the early church history, because they held a lot of wacky views. They really did. A lot of the early, oh, yeah. there are a lot of early Christian, when I say early Christians, I'm not talking about the inspired disciples or apostles. I'm talking about the Christians who lived after the disciples' death, those who, who lived a hundred plus years after. And, and a lot of them held to some very strange and, and weird beliefs. And we already talked about Anthony the Great, who uh, literally believed that he had to go and sell everything he had. And he ended up living in the, the desert and became uh, the leader of the church, fa- uh, the, the uh, desert fathers, which ended up from that. We, we have now the monks, really. And that's, that we're all, that's where all that can be traced back to. And so there are a lot of things there that are weird. So pointing to a, an early church father, pointing to the early Christians and pointing to anybody, even before like Lee's doing, going before Jesus and pointing to Jews who understood scripture a certain way, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily correct, but it does show that there were others who had come to that same conclusion before. Exactly. And so, and so I think that is important. All right. So let's move on to number two. <laughs> Number two. All right. If we take Genesis 1 through 11 as parabolical myth storytelling, then what other stories, if any, do you believe should be considered parabolic and not literal history? In other words, does this not completely destroy the way we read the Bible and discredit it altogether? To answer the last part of that question, I'm going to answer that first. I don't think it does any more than reading a love letter in a different way than you read a cookbook in a different way than you read a technical text on computer programming destroys the truth or validity of any of those other things. Yes. I mean, and, and, and actually, can I interrupt you for a minute? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just did, but let me interrupt you a little bit longer. <laughs> Go ahead, brother. I've been thinking about this a lot, a lot lately. So we had answered the question or you had answered the question and I kind of chimed in a little bit in the last episode about pitting science against the scriptures. And we talked about something being, you know, non-science and anti-science. We were just kind of spitballing there. But here's something that I have pondered on since we did that last episode. I don't think the issue has anything to do with something being miraculous or non-miraculous. And here's why. I think the issue has is, is not about science. I think the issue is about the genre, the literary genre. Yeah. And and I think that is the more I think about that question that was asked in the last episode that I asked you, I, I, I and even I talked a little bit and gave my own little answer on that. I think that is actually the better answer is that we're not talking about coming to scripture and seeing something and saying, I can't accept that because science can't prove it. 
It's saying, well, based upon the literary genre, I believe that this would be better understood as a parable instead of literal history. And and so when we come to the resurrection of Jesus or when we come to just the life of Jesus, we're not trying to, to look at that and say, well, since it was a miracle, could it have really happened? We're saying, well, look, if I accept what I'm reading here, the genre is history. We can know this not just from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also from other writings outside of the scriptures that talk about Jesus as being a literal historical character, and people really believed he died and was resurrected. And so I think that the answer has is, is, is nothing to do with science, but it has everything to do with trying to figure out the literary genre. And so your argument would be, the reason you don't the reason you deny that Genesis 1 and 2 is a literal reaccounting of the creation is not because you think it goes against science but because you believe that it's in a different literary genre is that correct that's the primary reason yes yeah. and the things that point me to that conclusion is the conflict that exists with science and the fact that the ancient science of their day viewed everything through that particular lens of reality. But that's one of the things that that we covered in that in that very first episode that we did on science and faith is that importance of genre. And brother, you could not have possibly said it any better just then. Because that generic discourse, it is so, so, so important. And whenever we come to the Bible with our own presuppositions as to what the Bible is and how it works and how we engage with it, a lot of times we tend to ignore those markers that tell us what type of genre we're dealing with, and we don't look at it on the merits of that genre. You know, the primary way that Jesus taught through was through the genre of parables. And a parable is a story that is not true, but communicates fundamental truth. So to say that God won't teach or can't teach or doesn't teach through something that isn't factually true is to miss the entire point of what Jesus did and to ignore what Jesus did largely. But in this question about if Genesis is parabolic myth storytelling, then what other Bible stories are not literal history? I think that if you look at each of the different books of the Bible on their own merits, well, then it's obvious which ones aren't. I mean, if you look at Psalms, Psalms is not literal history. If you look at Proverbs, it's not literal history. If you look at Ecclesiastes, there was not a literal person that lived. All of those are mythological that, that tell a story. It's a parable that explains the human condition. It talks about when life doesn't make sense. Well, and, and this is something I like to call literary accommodation because, yeah. because what's happening is you're, you're accommodating uh, you know, to your audience based upon the, the, the genre, the literature genre. And so it, it, it's, we do this all the time, right? We talk about well, where do children come from? Well, that's okay. This, a stork drops them off. Okay. And we tell this parable, this story. Well, we all know that's really not true, but we're using, uh, we're being accommodative through the way in which we are explaining through, through our, through this literary genre. And so, I think it's very important to understand the Bible does this all throughout. Sometimes it does it in the same book where it'll be partly historical and other parts will be parabolical. The Gospels are a, are a great example of that because that's how Jesus taught. He taught using parables. I think it was one third of everything Jesus said when he was teaching was parabolical. It was, it was, he, he was using that to accommodate his audience. It was a literary accommodation. So we do see this both in the Old and throughout the New Testaments. Yeah, and at the risk of getting people even more riled up than I've already riled them up with this whole series of episodes, there's a couple of other books because in, in some cases, it's really easy to see. And, and what you just brought up too, though, I want to touch on this. It's a really good point that needs to be made. A lot of times you're going to have multiple genres within the same work. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you're, you're not going to have, you know, okay, so we can look at the book of Samuel, first Samuel, and we know that that is history period. No, there may be some allegory in there. There may be some metaphor in there. Well, there's definitely metaphor in there. There's metaphor everywhere. That's a literary structure instead of a genre, but we're going to see peppered throughout the scriptures. There's going to be a primary genre that a book falls into, but then there's going to be other genres peppered into it. And the example of the gospels is a great one because you have narrative history being accounted for there. And then you have parable peppered throughout there. Yeah. So, so that, that to me is pretty plain, but there are other books 
that it's not as easy to determine what it is. And so we tend to shoehorn them into being literarily historical or literally historical rather than literarily historical and or meta historical or whatever else speaking to a narrative. And one of those books that I believe is not literal is not a literal accounting of history is the book of Jonah. And the reason for that. Oh, is, my goodness. Lee. Yeah, I know, Good I know. night. You just at this point, you should just throw away the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, there are and I'm not saying that derogatory. That's that's oh, yeah, yeah. what I would have used to say probably just three or four or five years ago, because when people listen to this, they hear what you're saying. And and it's just such a shock because. And I get it. I understand why this is such a shock because, first of all, you're saying throw out, and I say throw out. I'm I'm being derogatory, you know, in a joking way. Yeah, but yeah. you don't, you know, you're 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 not throwing it out. You're simply contextualizing it and saying this is what the this is the genre I believe we should read this piece of of literature in. But you know, when when you when you do that, this really scares people. And and I would say on the surface, rightly so, because this is so foreign. And this goes back to why I don't consider myself a fundamentalist or, you know, and I'm careful because I guess I do still fall into the category of evangelical to some extent, for sure, because there's a lot of things I'm, I'm definitely not Catholic. I can tell you that. So well, it's a really, really broad category. Yeah. And and but, you know, what you're saying here may seem like a shock. To so many people. So you're saying that you don't think Jonah actually happened. I don't think Jonah actually happened. And here's why. Whenever you look at all of the accounts in scripture, I think there are literary clues within Jonah that point us in this direction. But if you look at all of the accountings of the interactions of the prophets of God with the people of God and with the enemies of God, you see a very clear pattern. The prophets are always men of God who hear what God has to say. You look at Nathan going to King David, the most powerful man in the world of Israel at that time, to declare to him a truth that whenever he you know, took Bathsheba from Uriah and had Uriah killed, when he committed adultery and basically committed murder, that he sinned, that was a dangerous game. You know, you have Nathan taking the word of the Lord to David. That's not something he wanted to do. And then even look at Elijah. You've got King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Ahab's, a, you know, a wicked beta male king, you know, under the thumb of his wicked, wicked wife. I mean, we still, non-religious people use the term Jezebel to describe a terrible woman. I mean, that's how pervasive it is. And that's how evil she was. Jezebel was an incredibly evil woman. And Elijah himself, after he slays the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you know, he's not scared of Ahab. He'll go and confront Ahab. He's gone and he's confronted Ahab. They've had it out back and forth. He is the man of God going and speaking to speaking God's truth to this enemy of God. And then whenever Jezebel says, I'm coming for you, he turns tail, he runs and hides. He's terrified. He runs, he hides in the hills, hides in the mountains. God speaks to him and lets him in on his plan involving Elisha, the king of Syria, and uh, Jehu. And Elijah is then told to go back and to prophesy and to do his thing. Don't worry about Jezebel. Well, Elijah's still scared of Jezebel, but he trusts God. He goes and does it anyway. And if you, that's just an example of all of these different prophets that exist. You look at Daniel, who prayed with his window open toward Jerusalem in the face of being thrown to the lion's den. You look at these prophets that spoke what God told them to speak in the face of certain death, in the face of great harm coming to themselves. Look at the major and minor prophets and what they experienced. And now look at all of that. That is the theme that you see. That is the common thread that you see running through all of the prophets. And then you get to Jonah. You have God telling Jonah to do something, and then Jonah doesn't do it. Jonah yeah. is the man of God, and yet he is standing opposed to the will of God here. He's the only prophet except maybe for Balaam who did that. And then he runs, he gets on the ship. There's this great storm that gets stirred up. And then the men on the boat, they're trying to lighten the boat. They're throwing crap into the water. And Jonah says, hey, it's my fault. You throw me overboard, it's all going to be okay. They throw him overboard, the storm subsides. And then this great fish comes and swallows Jonah. 
We spend so much time worrying about whether that fish was literal or whether it was real or not. Well, that fish, it couldn't possibly be real or whatever. Oh, yeah, it was. We try to prove the story of the fish that we missed yeah. the entire well, point of the story. Well, I mean, it's it's one well of a tale. It's a whale of a tale, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I see what you did there. You're so yeah. clever. But, yeah, but yeah, we do. yeah. We, it's, we, we'll go, go we, ahead. Yeah, we, we miss the point, and we'll circle back around to that in a minute. We spend so much time arguing about the fish. We spend so much time arguing about the whale and what kind it would have to be and why didn't it digest them and all this other stuff that we miss the point. Because what happens when Jonah gets to Nineveh? He gets to Nineveh. He spat out onto the shore. He gives the shortest sermon ever given in history. Repent, or in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Then he gets and goes up, sits on a hill, and sulks for a while. And then what happens in Nineveh? Well, they repent. They repent, right? Everyone repents. The story of Jonah tells us that the people of Nineveh repent from the king all the way down to the pauper. They all clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes. There's a great revival that takes place in Nineveh. Everyone tears their clothes, and, and God sees their repentance, and he saves them. And then what does Jonah do? He gets mad. He's upset about it. And so then God makes the plant grow over him and gives him shade, and then the plant withers and dies, and we won't even get into all that, you know, all that stuff. But what we see in the story of Jonah is everything's turned on its head. You see the wrath of God being doled out to the enemies of God over again in Scripture. But in this sense, you see the Ninevites repenting, coming to God, and worshiping the God of Israel. Well, and then now, you have Jesus who actually turns this into an allegory. Yeah, he turns it into an allegory, and and he you know tells those people who denied him that the people of Nineveh will judge them in the day of judgment. So you have that being made. You have Jesus referring to this story allegorically, but here to me, you have the fish, which points me in the direction of myth. You also have or parable. I'm trying not to use that word myth, and then you have you know the entire narrative being flipped and Jonah sort of being the villain in the story instead of the good guy and the Ninevites being the good guys instead of the villains. Well, who were the Ninevites? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital city. And who were the Assyrians? They were the primary oppressors of Israel. They hated the Assyrians, the Israelites did. They hated the Assyrians because they are the ones that conquered them. They are the ones that caused the diaspora, the scattering of the 10 northern tribes. They are the ones that led their forefathers away in chains at the time that Jonah was written. And yet here are the Ninevites repenting and coming to God. And we'll circle back around to that in a minute. Okay. Because so, that, that has a part to play. So are there it, any other, ahead, so, so are there any other uh, books we should go ahead and rip out of our Bibles? <laughs> Not yet. We're getting there because <laughs> there's an important point. There's an important point that needs to be made about this. There is zero. The Assyrian Empire is very well researched. It is very well understood. Tons of documents have been found from their annals. I mean, we know about the Assyrians. We know about their history. We know when they started, who their kings were, what they did, what their culture is like. Archaeologists have found this information. Anthropologists have found their have found this information, and there is absolutely zero historical record, zero record of a great revival taking place in Nineveh and them forsaking all of their gods that they worshiped in order to follow Israel's god. There is no record of the king making the decree that he makes in Jonah. There is no record of them repenting in sackcloth and ashes. There's no record of a prophet being coughed up on a shore by a great fish. There is zero record that that ever took place. So you don't even believe Jonah was a real historical figure then? Oh, no, I believe he was a real historical figure. He's referred to in the book of Chronicles as a prophet within David's court. And I can't remember the exact quotation that speaks to that, but he is mentioned in other books of the Bible. Okay. And so you, so you do me, believe he was literal. He, he was yes. a real man then. Okay. Yeah, I believe Jonah existed 100%, but I don't believe that this story actually took place because of the literary stuff and because of the historical stuff. To me, it seems like that the writer was up to something else. The point he was trying to make whenever this story was penned is maybe God cares more about maybe God cares about other people in the world besides just Israel. Maybe God's love and acceptance could extend even to the enemies of Israel, which to me makes the allegory that Jesus makes all the more potent when he says the people of Nineveh are going to judge you in that day. 
So to me, it seems like that's the point that's trying to be made here. And to me, that's a much stronger point to be made than whether or not a fish actually swallowed a dude and kept him in his stomach for three days and then, you know, yacked him up on the, on the shore. To me, that's a much stronger point. And earlier, I mean, I was just so the audience knows, and and hopefully by now, if if you are a faithful listener, you know, and Lee and I both are being sarcastic and joking and making stupid little comments, but some, in, in cases, your first time listening the whole thing about ripping these books out of your Bible was a joke because that's how a lot of people will will view Lee what you're saying. They'll say, well, let's just go ahead then. And, you know, according to what Lee's saying, we should just rip this out of our Bibles. And that goes to that dichotomy we keep talking about, that if you don't see the Bible the way I see it, then you're not seeing it accurately. If you don't read the Bible the way I read it, then you might as well not read it at all. That's the problem with this dichotomy we've created. So when you do have people who read the Bible and they come to Jonah and they say, huh, this reads more like a parable. And I've studied the book of Jonah historically, and there's no evidence that any of these events happened. And we do have a lot of historical evidence that many of these other events happen in the Bible. Perhaps Jonah was just a pair or not Jonah himself, but the the book, the Jonah story of and Jonah. The, the Big yeah. Fish, was a parable. And instead of that being even entertained, it's being condemned. It's being shut down. I was reading on a website the other day, and uh, I, for the for the sake of, of not trying to blackball them, I won't say what the website was, but they had made the comment how if you have people questioning these types of things that you're questioning, it needs to be shut down immediately and authoritatively. And I'm thinking to myself, why? Why should this not be explored? Why can't this be put out there as an option? Because as Lee just said, it doesn't affect anything. God wanted it in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Whether you read it literally, whether you read it as a parable, it doesn't change the message that is found within. So it just really doesn't matter. And I know that most people hearing that, their first response, because this used to be my response, is, well, what about the story of Jesus? What if people start reading that more or less as a parable? And we start saying that Jesus really didn't die and was resurrected. That's a different issue, because now we're talking about literal history. We're talking about historical events that are that, that, that are recorded for us in a historical way that are documented also outside of the Bible. So... That's not a implication. We should not imply just because Jonah or, you know, the the story of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish may not be a literal story. It may just be parable. We shouldn't say, well, that implies then we can't trust the Bible. Those are those false dichotomies that are killing Christianity right now. Just literally, we are hurt. We are killing ourselves right now because we're not letting people have the freedom to think for themselves so that they can reach their own conclusions on these matters. We're not letting people explore faith and pursue grace. And that's the reason why we're doing this podcast is to demonstrate that there is a way that we can do this. There is a way that we can move forward in this in spite of our differences, in spite of our different interpretive strategies and realize that we are still God's children. We are still worshipers of the most high and that he loves us and he wants us to draw near unto him. But one point that I want to make before we move on from this idea is even though I don't believe that Jonah is literally history, I believe, even though I don't believe it happened, I believe it's absolute truth because something can be true and not be literally historical or literally. Yeah, I'll use the right word. I didn't know if I said literally or literarily there for a minute there. You know, those terms, they sound a lot alike. Just like Jesus's parables are absolutely 100% true, they are not historical. In the same way, that's how I view Jonah. In the same way, that's how I view Genesis. I believe that it is absolutely true. I believe it is inspired. I believe that it teaches absolute truth for what it intends to touch on. And that generic discourse that we talked about earlier, for me, is the key by which that is viewed. Well, and I was just going to say, I believe one of the reasons why people find this difficult to accept is because it's not the way they've been conditioned. It's it, no, nothing that you're saying is contrary to not to something that they don't already believe. Because how many people get upset when you say that the Good Samaritan didn't really happen? 
Nobody gets upset. Why? Because we understand that's a parable. We've been conditioned to believe and understand that's a parable. But with a lot of these Old Testament stories, number one, we really haven't done much study in the Old Testament like we should compared to the New Testament. At least I know I didn't growing up, and and even the preaching school that I went to did not emphasize the Old Testament hardly at all in comparison with the New Testament. So what's happened is we've done a much better job at conditioning ourselves on how to spot a parable in the New Testament, but when it comes to the Old Testament, we've done a horrible job at conditioning ourselves. So when you say that you believe that Jonah, the story of Jonah could be a parable, that scares people to death, not because having a parable in the Bible would discredit the Bible, but because they've not been conditioned to believe that that could even possibly be true. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's what are you looking at Jonah and just in passing, I don't want to get into this too much because we spent more time talking about that than I anticipated we would. But even Job, I mean, there are so many people that look at Job as a poetic book. Yeah. And when you I look agree at the with you on that one. Yeah. I mean, and the narrative structure follows the narrative structure of ancient poetic Hebrew prose. It appears in all ways to be a poetic literary work rather than literal history. But I mean, I know people and I love these people and I don't doubt their sincerity. I don't doubt their devotion to Jesus for a minute. They view Job as being a literal event that literally happened. But whenever we focus on the literality of Job, you miss the point of Job that even whenever we adhere to the strictest commandments that God has for us, sometimes life isn't going to make sense. And in those moments, we need to trust anyway. And whenever we focus on the literality of Jonah, we miss the point that God loves everyone, even the enemies, the sworn enemies of Israel that destroyed the nation of Israel as punishment for their sins against God. I was going to ask you, do you believe Job was a real man? You know, I have no idea. I think he probably was, and maybe some bad stuff happened to him. And this, there's a lot of people that believe that the story of Job was written down as part of a larger, longer oral tradition. And more than likely, that tradition was steeped in some form of reality and some form of history. But honestly, I have no idea. I really have no opinion on that subject. I well, honestly don't know. I, I happen to agree with you on on Job, and I think you make a compelling case for Jonah at best. I'm like, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter. (laughs) And that's what people listening, it doesn't matter, you know? And, and what, what is frustrating to me is that you're not drawing the line. You're not saying, Hey, I believe we should read these books as being parables, not literal. So you have to agree with me. You're not the one drawing the line. And there's a lot of people, for lack of better words, on the other side who thankfully are not drawing the line. But the ones who are drawing the line typically be typically are the ones who take a biblicist approach, a literalist, a literalist approach and say, well, you've got to see things the way I've got to see it. And that's where the problem arises. It's not in saying, hey, let me explain to you. There are some people who take books like Job and Jonah and the creation account and they believe that these are more parable, uh, told in, in a par- parabolical fashion. And regardless of what you view, you know, regardless of what your view is, it's okay. That's one thing. And I think that's the way it should be. But, but a lot of times it's viewed as, hey, there's some horrible, evil people out there who are trying to destroy the faith. <laughs> and they believe that this is a parable and we've got to do everything we can to stop it. So we're going to create websites and write books because people have to know these were not parables. And that distracts us from the message of the story itself. And as we have said, I don't think it matters either way, but I want to explain why I believe Job. If you take Job literally, I think you have a big problem on your hands with God. Yep. Yep. And, And the reason is, and there's a lot of reasons, but I don't want to get off on this, but one of the points I want to mention is Throughout the course, God allows Satan to kill his children, to kill Job's children. And not only that, but at the end, God said, okay, all right, Satan's had enough fun with you. I've allowed him to, to you're sick, you've had boils, you've lost all your money, your live, your, your livelihood, your, your crops, you've lost your, your children. 
But good news, I'm going to give you twice as many kids. Yay! <laughs> I, I'm not even a parent, but I want all the parents out there, and you're a parent, to imagine a God who says, I'm going to kill all your children, but the good news is I'm going to give you twice as much, so it'll be okay. Yeah. And when you when you think about that, when you think about that whole concept, and that's that's found if you want to know where that's at, that's in Job 42.10, and if you continue reading, he talks about the children. But that whole concept is all a parabolical way of saying God restores twice as much. God, God is a God that's going to give us twice as much. You can't replace children. Yeah. No, my, my sister was killed in a car wreck. If you were to tell my mom and dad, hey, God was allowing Satan to kill your daughter, but you know what? He's going to give you another daughter. He's going to give you two more daughters. Yeah, he's going to give you two more. That's going to make up for it. That's a slap in the face yes. to anybody. And so when people read this and, and, and they come back, well, we just got to trust in God and lean on, on your own understanding. My response is you are leaning on your own understanding by accepting the Bible without looking at the greater context. And that in and of itself is leaning on your own understanding because you're not leaning on the cultural understanding. You're leaning on your own understanding at the time instead of when this book was written and how it was written. And exactly. so I, I just think that that poses a huge problem. Once again, I think anybody can read Job literally and be a faithful Christian. I don't draw the line. I would say probably 95% of the people that I'm friends with and work with and, 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 you know, in all capacities believe who, if they're a Christian, believe that's a real story. But I think if you are, take that serious and you're pressed up against the wall and you have to really analyze that. And this, by the way, is aside from all the, the points you mentioned about how the whole book is written like a poem. I mean, if you read the way that it goes back and forth, there's just the, the whole, the whole way in which it's written, the literary genre. I mean, it, it, it's very poetic it reads like a parable. It doesn't read like literal history. But but beyond that, when you take all of the things that are said in there and go, oh, God's a great God. God's God, yes, God is a great God. But the point of the book is to show how God is ultimately in charge and that he is always going to take care of you so much more. He's always going to do so much more for you than what the adversary can do to you. And, exactly. And so I just think that everything you're saying, <clears throat> excuse me, everything you're saying, hopefully, is is at least being received by our listeners, even if they don't agree. Because I, I, I still would say just because what you're saying, you know, that doesn't in and of itself say, hey, we can go back to creation and say we don't have to take a literal view. I think that you can take Job as a parabolical book and still understand Genesis as literal. I think there can be all sorts of hybrid beliefs, but the point is I hope people are being open to realize the importance of understanding the context, the ancient near Eastern context, the literary context text, the genre, all of those different things. Well, and I think that that's spot on because whenever you look at it within its context and you don't lean on your own understanding and you look at the cultural understanding and you really try to do justice to the text, part of that is understanding that generic discourse. And yeah. whenever we argue over whether or not it's literal, we're in large part, we're ignoring the context. In large part, we're ignoring what the Bible actually is, but also we're missing the entire point to begin with. We're missing the point that the writer wanted to make. We're missing the point that the Holy Spirit wanted to have preserved for all of this time for us to consume and for us to understand. We're missing those aspects about the nature of God and who he is and how he wants us to approach him. We're missing all of that stuff whenever we argue about the literalness or non-literalness of all of this stuff. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. And I, and I really appreciate what you said about me not drawing the line because I do not look at Genesis 1 through 11 as literal. I don't view that as literal at all. And I don't believe that the earth was created in six literal days. I believe that evolution is the means by which God brought us to bear and that that is the creative process that he used to bring us into existence. But here's the thing. If you believe in a literal six-day creation, that's awesome. I'm going to extend fellowship to you. I am going to extend love to you and I'm going to recognize you as a fellow laborer in the vineyard, vineyard of the Lord, because that isn't what divides us. It only divides us if we allow it to divide us. 
And there's way too much division going on, man. There's been way too much division that has gone on in the world of Christianity. It's, it's just, it's tragic. And I'm really hoping that that will change in the future. And I'm hoping that you and I can be a part of this change. And I'm hoping that these answers that we've given in this Q and a session are going to be sufficient for people. I hope that this, at least, even if you don't agree with me at this point, that's fine. That is awesome. I really don't care if you agree with me or not. It has no bearing on how I view you. It has no bearing on how God views you. Whether you agree with me or whether you don't is immaterial. The purpose in this in this entire process has not been to get other people on board with me and to tell everybody else how wrong they are and they really need to look at it this way. It's been to talk to those people, to you listeners that have struggled with some of these ideas and some of these questions. It's well, to talk I, to you guys that have that have faced this and had sleepless nights like I have, and to show you that there's another way that you can think about this that doesn't compromise what you know about science. You can still love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love Jesus with every fiber of your being, and believe that this universe is 14 billion years old. Well, there's there's two layers to this when we're talking about drawing lines and condemning people and not fellowshipping others because we think that they're position is incorrect. The first the first layer is conviction. And that is whatever I hold, I do believe it's right. And if you disagree with me, I do believe you're wrong. Otherwise, I wouldn't hold the positions I hold. But yes. here's the second tier that oftentimes we miss. On most issues we're discussing, I don't think you're wrong for being wrong. And that's, that is the more important topic because that's where unity is. Paul told the church in Corinth that there's nothing wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And if you believe that it is wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols, factually, you're wrong. You are. But you're not wrong for being wrong. And he told the people who did hold the correct view to be patient with those who did not while they worked through it because that's where they were at in their faith. That is what we have to look at. We have to go deeper than this shallow surface level of thinking. You're wrong. I'm right. It's, well, you know what? I think I'm right and I think you're wrong, but I don't think you're wrong for being wrong. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, there, there is because most of the time, no, not most of the time, all the time, as humans, we will be changing our views. I don't know how many times I thought I was right, but I was wrong. But thankfully, I was still right in the eyes of God, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that's where the focus always needs to be. One thing, though, before we conclude, we did have this as another question, but we've almost tapped out our time. And so we, we already have pretty much hit on this. This was really an addendum to the to the to to number 2 there but when we talk about this idea of genre whether we should understand something as literal history and parabolic history parabolical history or something that is is figurative or literal or something that was just a myth storytelling versus something that actually happened all those things when we get into those types of questions that everything we've been talking about tonight i also believe that there's a lot of vagueness to this that we just have to figure out ourselves because when it comes to the message of the cross and Christian, by, by the way, I am a Christian. I am a Christian is what I am. I'm not an Old Testament in. Okay. So yeah. my faith is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, that's what it's about. I preach nothing more than Christ and him crucified. We know for a fact, when we talk about that genre, I don't know of anybody who has ever argued Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not meant to be literal history. I don't know, even atheists, even, even textual scholars who don't believe in, they may not even be atheists, but who, don't, who are not Christians, will say this was at least written believing that this was supposed to be literal history. So that is, to me, something that is in stone. So all of when we're talking about trying to figure out if something was literal history and parabolic history, we're mainly talking about Old Testament stories because that's not really an issue in the New Testament. That's not an issue yeah. when it comes to Jesus. That's that that that's not even in the same ballpark. So most of this is in the Old Testament. And as Lee pointed out, you did a great job pointing this out. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the actual meaning. In fact, sometimes 
and this has been my personal experience, when you quit reading things, trying to read them as literal history in the Old Testament, sometimes it's easier to actually get the meaning because you're not caught up in all these silly details that are more or less distracting us from the message, not because of the way it was written, but because the way we have understood how it should be written or how we wish it was written instead of how it actually is written. I think that's perfect, man. That's absolutely perfect because in the in the Old Testament, what do you have? You have prose, you have poetry, you have some narrative, you have some narrative history, you have a ton of prophecy, and you have a lot of apocalypse going on in the Old Testament as far as literary genres go. In the New Testament, you have narrative history, you have some letters, and you have an apocalypse. That's that's pretty much the the narrative or the uh, uh, literary structure of the New Testament, the generic discourse of the New Testament. So in all of this, in, in my mind, at least from where I am, none of this has any bearing on Christ and his work. None of this has any bearing on Christ and him crucified and his redemptive act for me. Now, the Adam question is one of those questions that may touch on, well, what do you do with Adam? What do you do with Adam? We're going to do an episode on that, and it's going to be really, really good. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. And I'll, I want to say one more thing, too, because be- before you, you finish up here. Uh, and, yeah, I think, I, and I think it's important for the audience to know this. And this is actually part of, I pulled up part of the uh, book that I'm working on right now because I'm going to be talking about this. But when you look at how some of the early Christians viewed the scriptures, uh, Marcion, you may not be familiar with that name at all, but Marcion, he actually rejected the whole Old Testament as well as several other epistles in the New Testament. But He's known for just throwing out the whole Old Testament. He believed that the teachings of Jesus were incompatible with the Old Testament. And the way in which people responded to Marcion, well, first of all, they called him a heretic, and they just said, hey, you know, it's this guy, he's not welcome anymore. And most Christians labeled him a heretic, even though there were other Christians who followed him. But it's funny today, just side note, how when we call someone a heretic today, it was similar to how the early church called people heretics. You can you can make an accusation against anybody. It doesn't make it so. But most people call Martian a heretic because he said we should just throw out the whole Old Testament. And his reason is when you read a lot of the Old Testament, it just doesn't seem to really, uh, just really doesn't seem to harmonize with Jesus. And that's how, or that's, that's when Origen came into the picture. And he responded to Marcion later on by saying that he acknowledged and that there was a lot of things in the Old Testament that were exceedingly difficult to make sense of morally. He talks about the genocide and a lot of the war stories of uh, both children and innocent, you know, innocent children and women being slaughtered. And so Origen also agreed with Marcion and he said, yeah, this is difficult. And that's why we have to look at the Old Testament as an allegory. So while Marcion said, let's not even deal with the Old Testament, Origen said, well, let's deal with it, but we can only deal with it allegorically. That's the, that's the way it should be dealt with. So people have struggled with these things from the beginning of time, from the, from the beginning of when they were written. And that's something that we're not going to settle, not just tonight, but ever, because I think this is part of that growing in the faith. We want that post-enlightenment certainty that it, it almost takes away from the idea of, of trust and faith because we don't want to have to trust in Jesus. We want to be able to, to give me that fruit, give me that tree of, of knowledge of good and evil so I can have that knowledge and I don't have to trust in Jesus. So these things people have wrestled with for a very, very, very long time. They've, and, and you know, Marcion lived from, from about 85 to 160. So, I mean, you're talking first and second century, very soon uh, after Jesus, Jesus died. So when you take all that into consideration, you, you can understand why we're still discussing it right now. Because they, were, they lived the closest to the original you know, the apostles than anybody else. And yet they still had the same problems we're having today. So it's important for people to be very humble, I believe, when we approach this issue in particular, but all issues, to make sure that we are exempting that, you know, showing that humility when we are talking about these subjects, because this is something people struggle with for a long time. So it's not a one size fits all. It's not, here's how you always know if something should be understood parabolical or something should be literal. They dealt with, they they struggle with it back then. We struggle with it today. And for those who act like there is no struggle, 
to me, that is the biggest issue is we have to start being more vulnerable and admitting, hey, some of this stuff's just difficult and we're trying to wade through it and we may never have an answer this side of, of heaven. Well, and I don't think we will. I, I think that God gave us the Bible. He gave us for a reason. And I think that part of struggling with it and wrestling with it and learning through it, it I think it's that way by design. And this is just my personal opinion on it. I think that he revealed what he revealed and they wrote what they wrote for a very specific reason so that we would have to lean on him and trust in him. Because yeah. like you said, dude, we want that certainty. We want to be certain that we are certain that we are certain. And when we are so certain that we are right, well, then where's the growth from there? If I've got it all figured out and I have the entirety of Genesis to Revelation on lock and it's just a matter of getting other people to think the way I think where's my growth? Like at that point, am I fully grown? I'm not going to grow anymore. It's it, to me, it's, it completely flies in the face of what we see revealed in scripture regarding spiritual maturity. It's something that's an ongoing process. And through this, I hope that this has been beneficial to our listeners, especially those that have wrestled with some of these questions. And if we didn't get to your question or if we didn't answer your question and, or if you want to know more, We'd love for you to send us an email. Um, you can shoot us a message on Facebook. You can shoot us an email. We have our link always in the comments and the show notes. Give us a shout. We love interacting with you guys. We love hearing from you guys. We love hearing the good that this podcast is doing in the world. And we really want to grow it. We really want to reach more people. And by the way, this is some. these are some comments that, that I've had sent to me on Facebook. We don't make any money from this. This is not something that we're doing to try to build some sort of multimedia empire and make a ton of money off of it. No, we're, we're not like preachers. <laughs> oh, oh, oh man oh, that's a low blow I'm baby just kidding to all my preacher friends out there <laughs> yes <of course. laughs> kind of sort of <laughs> but no this is something that we fund out of our own pockets it really doesn't cost a whole lot to do a podcast yeah we have real um, jobs we do we do we have jobs oh, man. Two for dude, two. dude you're on fire tonight oh man. but but we pretty much wrapped up what we wanted to cover tonight we've answered the questions that we wanted to cover and we just want to thank all of you for listening. We're really excited about some of the episodes we have coming up. Like I said, we have our interview with Dr. Uh, Dennis Lamaru that we'll be doing soon. And I'm really excited to, to speak with him. We're also going to be getting into some end time stuff on eschatology and some different viewpoints on that. And we have some other really cool stuff coming around the corner and down the pike with some other special guests that we'll be having on here. And if there's someone that you know of that would be a good guest, and I don't mean Billy Bob down here on the corner, but if you know of someone that would, um, it'd be fun to have a conversation with them, reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. As always, share this podcast with everybody. Like us and follow us on Facebook. Give us that coveted five-star review. Coveted in a godly way, not, not in an ungodly way. But um, tell your friends about us, and we hope to see you all again very soon.